0: Are we alone? What is NASA doing to answer that very important question? Let's talk to one of the top astrobiologists in the country.
1: As we look for unusual life here on Earth and life elsewhere, we look for the unexpected.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Green, chief scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Mary Wojtek. She's the lead scientist for astrobiology at NASA headquarters, and she manages the entire astrobiology program for NASA. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for asking me to do this, Jim. Well, you know, you've been doing this now for many years, and the concept of astrobiology is really coming on strong. We talk about it all the time in science, but what really is astrobiology? What does it mean?
1: So NASA defines astrobiology as understanding how life emerged and evolved here on Earth and where it could possibly exist elsewhere beyond Earth.
0: You know, when I talk to the public and I say, you know, NASA's looking for life beyond Earth, the first thing they think of is, wow, we're looking for little green men. But are we really doing that?
1: So NASA's strategy for looking for life has been informed by what we understand about Earth. We think there's been life on this planet for maybe about 4 billion years, but that's been single-cell microbial life. It's only been in the last few hundred thousand years or or several hundred million years that we've had forms of life that would be more recognizable and would, would be able to be seen without the unaided eye. So most of the time on this planet, the only life that was here was microbial, single cell, in terms of form and structure, very simple. And so in terms of searching for life, just in terms of probabilities, um, it is more likely that we would find microbial life on other worlds. One of the most important things is in understanding how you go from a planet that where there's no life to a planet that is teeming with life is to look at those transitions and the condition of the planet as well as how it affects the processes that are steps towards the emergence of life. So we're looking at things like What are the physical and chemical conditions on early Earth that would be conducive to the production of molecules that end up becoming extremely important uh, in life? And that includes molecules that can provide energy as well as molecules that can be built on to provide um, structure and function and basically the components uh, that we see in life today.
0: Well, one aspect of that that's really excited me, and that is looking for life in extremes. You know, you look out into the solar system and it's hot or it's really cold or, you know, the environments are so much different than ours. And so extreme environments are really important. And I know we do that here on Earth. Absolutely.
1: And in fact, you know, in addition to understanding the steps towards life emerging and looking for the earliest signs of life here on Earth, we also want to understand those limits to life. Because as you said, the environments in our own solar system beyond Earth are not Earth-like. They're not the conditions that we all find pleasant. It's not the lovely climate of California out on those planets. And, And so we need to understand how life can actually persist in something that is beyond our comfort zone. So our comfort range is, you know, we know what room temperature is. We know what standard pressure is. Uh, And so organisms that seem to thrive and enjoy or or love conditions that are more extreme than that um, or outside our comfort zone are called extremophiles. So those are, you know, we can certainly live in cold temperatures, but not without putting on cold uh, weather clothing and building uh, shelters and generating heat for ourselves, but there are organisms that don't have coats, microorganisms that that aren't, you know, hooked into the power grid and generating enough heat to live, and they're called psychrophiles because they love the cold. And then there are organisms that really love the heat, um, that can live at temperatures above uh, the temperature at which water boils, so that's 100 degrees C. Uh, and so these allow us to start looking for environments that would be suitable to support life, even
0: if it's extreme life. Well, you know, one of the common threads between all those extreme environments is water. No matter where we go, where we find water, even in, in small amounts, we have the opportunity to find life.
1: Yeah, you know, we always struggle amongst scientists with definitions of life. And in fact, I usually like to say if you ask 100 scientists what is life or how to define life, you'll get 120 definitions. But one thing is really common uh, to all definitions is it, it requires a solvent. Mary, what do you mean by solvent? Well, in a chemical sense, it's a medium— Uh, or a a solution that allows reactions to take place. And so it facilitates transfers of electrons and modifications to chemistry. Uh, It also uh, provides uh, a liquid, also provides um, structure. And we are mostly water. And so that solvent um, or that liquid actually is responsible for our structure as well. So we are what we eat, and at the end of the process... We are what we drink. Here on Earth... The life that we know requires water. It's how it moves materials around. It allows the fluidity within cells so that um, cells can actually function. Uh, and so that has been one of the primary strategies at NASA for looking for places that could support life. So we go to extreme places here on Earth, like the dry valleys of Antarctica or the Atacama Desert, where to the eye it appears as if there's no water. But even a tiny bit of water, as you mentioned, life can take its advantage of. And so as we go beyond earth we're now then looking at environments on say Mars that might be have the same level of water that we see in these deserts
0: here on earth. You know, I remember the day you came into my office and we had this great discussion on on how we would define life and 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 how that should be viewed in, in, in a definition that would encompass all kinds of different life, you know, things that we can't even imagine right now, life not like us. And so you told me it had three basic parts. What were they? Well, of course, it required a solvent
1: to support a particular type of chemistry. It requires uh, a mechanism to acquire energy because everything requires energy to do anything. Uh, And then it had to be able to reproduce um, I guess I'm going to extend it a little bit to four. It sounds um, like it. It need to be able to evolve because our environment is not static. And, and as Earth has changed, life would not survive if it weren't able to adapt and, and uh, evolve to actually um, be able to thrive in the new environment.
0: Well, I know you were really excited about that definition because it's all-encompassing in the sense that that it doesn't, you know, require that it be water or that requires a carbon-based life uh, form. Uh, but I was kind of, you know, in the doldrums because, indeed, I can't write, run out and build an instrument that, that you know measures uh, reproduction and, and evolution, you know, is and then have that operate on some planet. So that's really tough. But the water theme for us, for Life Like Us, or the liquid uh, aspect of it, really helped us start a process of, of looking for life beyond Earth. Well, why should we care about this particular topic?
1: I'm going to break down the question to something a little bit different, which is, are we alone? That's a really compelling question. It's philosophically important. It challenges our identity as human beings. And I think people in general are just fascinated by that question, and they want to have that question answered. In addition, we now know more about how our own cells function. Uh, Some of the work that we do in astrobiology informs us about how cancerous cells um, may have have actually played a role in a positive way towards evolution because it's kind of growth out of control and maybe that's what you need to to initially establish yourself on a planet. And so it has all these ramifications for uh, just understanding biology here on Earth. And I have to say, I would be extremely excited for us to find something that was different than life life on Earth, because in science, you learn often the most when you find something to contrast. And so um, any kind of life is going to be exciting, but finding something that is very different would
0: be really exciting as well. Well, you know, even here on Earth, we're looking for that, right? We're looking for something really different. Uh, something maybe not carbon-based, or maybe not requiring water, but still another liquid. Uh, Where are we in that search, and have we found anything?
1: Well, so I like to tell people that when we define life or we understand life here on Earth, we're looking at the winner. So, the very the beginning of, of life, as it started to emerge, there were probably a lot of different solutions to, to what kind of solvent, uh, what kind of b- molecules were important for structure, what kind of energy was it requ- uh, acquiring, um, you know, what form it took, what elements it actually may have, have used. And at some point in time, as uh, life continued to uh, reproduce and evolve, there was a form that was the most successful here on Earth, given Earth's conditions. And we call that the last universal common ancestor. And at that point, most of biology, if not all of biology, have those basic things. But at the same time, there could be less successful organisms that exist still here on Earth, but the challenge in finding them on a planet that is overwhelmingly populated by all of those successful forms that come from um, from that winner uh, is a real challenge. And so looking in extreme environments allows us to start looking for that. We think about At some point in time on Earth, life became so predominant that it affected planetary processes. And you start seeing evidence of it, so you don't see growth and reproduction, but you see a change in the composition of our atmosphere. We went from an environment that was anaerobic to an atmosphere dominated by oxygen, and that was because of microorganisms. And so as we look for unusual life here on Earth and life elsewhere, we look for the unexpected. We learn more and more about how planets and planetary bodies function. We have an expectation of what their surfaces will look like. And we we understand what we expect from uh, an atmosphere if it has one. And then we look for something that just isn't what we expect, we look for a disturbance in the force. You might say something that is just unusual that we can't explain any other way, and that's where we begin. And that's to some extent in our enthusiasm for searching for life, uh, some mistakes we've made in the past where we thought we understood what we were looking for and didn't spend quite enough time um, dispelling any other possible explanation. But we're much smarter now, and that's exactly how we
0: take uh, how we approach the search for life. Well, you know, we've done so much work in this area, and, and there's so much detail. Why haven't we found life yet? So that's a really good question. <laughs> and I pause because, you know, it just swims
1: around in in so many uh, ideas in my head for why that's possible. And one is, of course, as we've already discussed, the challenge of is life is not as we know it. Um, and so, again, how do you look for life as we don't know? Um, the other issue is... It is pretty clear that based on life as we know it, that Earth is, you know, the premier planet. It is perfectly... situated in relationship to its sun, it's got a magnetic field that protects it, it's got many, many environments across the entire surface and into the subsurface that can support life as we know it. It is just an incubator, a perfect incubator. Uh, And so as you start looking into environments even on Earth where, say, nutrients are limiting or there are extreme physical conditions, you notice that the number of cells decreases. And so as we look beyond Earth and we look at places like Mars uh, or we look even beyond to the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, these environments are much more extreme than Earth, much less hospitable. And so just because of what we know about Earth the uh, the uh, inhabitability of an environment can control how much life you see we would predict the amount of life on any of those other bodies is going to be very dilute there isn't going to be much of it finding something very small it's like you know looking for a needle in a haystack relative to the bulk of materials on these bodies life is going to be a small component it's going to make less of an impact on the environment and so detection limits are are, are uh, essential and really really refining where we go to look for life is going to be essential because you know in in, in biology one of the things we do is grab a sample and grind Grind it up and, and then analyze it. Um, we can't take, you know, a giant sample of Mars and, and just grind it up and hope we find a cell in it. We have to be very smart about where we think it might be and figure out where we, how we can most effectively look at that very, very small
0: signal. Well, you know, there's another dimension to this that I've come to realize and appreciate, and that dimension is time. You know, when we go out to planets and we're looking at the current environments— Uh, Because the solar system is 4.6 billion years old, things have changed over time. And so uh, that dimension is really important. So, how do we think about how life might exist? in the past on other objects.
1: Particularly now that we have exoplanets to look towards, uh, the possibility has really exploded in terms of what environments might support life. And one of the strategies for people who are interested in exoplanets has has been to look at the environments on Earth over time. At the very beginning, the solar system was a kind of a violent uh, place to to be situated, with with bombardments from objects uh, out there like asteroids and and comets, and and that changed uh, the Earth both a, a, on its surface and its atmosphere. There's also just the differentiation, or you know, the evolution of the planet itself, and and you know, of course, I already mentioned one of the biggest changes was when we went through from an anaerobic atmosphere to our aerobic, and it turns out that's a huge Huge, huge deal for organisms dealing with oxygen. On one hand, of course, we know we can't live without it. But when that change first happened, it was a toxin. You know, oxygen is a way that we actually get rid of organics. Hydrogen peroxide is an oxygenated compound that we use to sterilize things. And so organisms had to figure out how to deal with that first. And then as a result, uh, you know, once they were able to adapt to oxygen, it turns out that oxygen is a fantastic molecule
0: to pair with other uh, molecules to actually generate energy. So this is really exciting. What do you think are some of the best payoffs that we've gotten by making this kind of uh, research uh, viable for NASA?
1: Well, I think that there are a number of uh, areas that, that we've had a major impact, as NASA has in general. A lot of our scientists that we fund to work on origin of life questions are also doing medical Uh, research. uh, And they're quite related. I also mentioned synthetic biology. And synthetic biology is where uh, basically we look at what organisms have managed to do on their own and uh, modify them to our, our own needs to make them do things that we need to have them do. So for example, bioremediation. You know The best way to clean up oil spills or contaminants in, the, in groundwater in particular is, is uh, to apply organisms that, that can use those contaminants either as an energy source or food um, for making materials in the cell. Uh, and, and in the process, they convert it from something toxic to something that is benign. Um, in addition, we have an instrument that we developed from a researcher out at Ames, Dave Blake, that's called Kemen. Um, it looks at the mineralogy uh, of systems and their their oxidative states. And one of the things it's currently being used for is uh, well, there are two interesting ones. One is it's it's used in the detection of counterfeit drugs, which is a gigantic problem for you know the World Health Organization. And in addition. Uh, they've used their instrument to detect fraudulent artwork. And so you can use this to understand minerals that go into paints that weren't present, say, during the Renaissance. It's important in terms of paint restoration, but also in making, you know, detecting actually, uh, you know, you may all know that uh, that canvases for painting were reused multiple times, and so you might find a, a Rembrandt that has multiple layers of different paintings and some of this um, it, you know the Kemen was the tool that could be used for the materials that that were were generated in that p- paint and any kind of change may lead to other kind of detection
0: for looking for things like that as well and that instrument is on curiosity, curiosity. Yes. on Mars, Mars. <laughs> yeah go curiosity. <laughs> (laughs) Right, and it's doing fantastic. Well, where are you most excited to look for life and why? I have two answers to that. One is in our own solar system,
1: as the uh, head of the astrobiology and program, I'm excited about all places, but I'm very, very much intrigued by the you moons. You love all your children equally, you know, as I, you know as as <laughs> I like to say. <laughs> Absolutely. I love all of my habitable environments equally. Uh, I'm very excited to learn more about the, the uh, moons of Saturn and Jupiter. I just think that between... Um, the possibilities with Europa and Enceladus and the fact that we are sending out missions to study them better and and just how bizarre Titan is which is a moon of Saturn uh, with the only other body in our solar system that has liquid on the surface but that liquid is methane and ethane and it's not water and so what kind of biology can you expect from something like that I mean if we find life there it's going to be ex- i just can 't even imagine it 's going to be so different than life here on Earth. One of the most amazing discoveries we made in the in the end of the '70s so right around the time that Viking had landed on Mars looking for life was discovering weird life here on Earth, and that was life that we found kilometers away from the surface. Uh, at the ocean floor, at hydrothermal vent systems. And this was the first time we discovered that life could be supported by energy other than the sun. Up until that point, we thought every single thing on the planet ultimately derived from energy provided by the sun. But we find this oasis of really odd organisms supported entirely by chemistry, chemical reactions that can generate the energy necessary for organisms to Uh, thrive. And so on these ice-covered oceans, we expect that we could possibly have the same system. We have evidence, uh, at least in one of them, that we definitely have hydrothermal activity, that is water interacting with rock of the planet or of the planetary body at higher or elevated temperatures. And that causes a certain kind of chemistry that on our own planet has led to supplying Molecules necessary for the energy that can support life, and so we think that that could be happening on either Saturn, at Saturn's moon Enceladus, or Jupiter's moon Europa. And then, of course, the possibilities that have recently, in the last ten, uh, you know, five to ten years, with the number of exoplanets we've detected, I mean, oh my goodness! I mean, it's almost any kind of planet that you could imagine. I mean, I feel like it's almost we're at the point of having a. Um, a video game or a, a you know a game where you just dial different things and you create a planet and it could support life you know oh i want it a little warmer i want it a little colder i want more water less water i want to you know have this mineral present or not i mean i just think that that the possibilities um, are are just you know astronomical yeah, <laughs> and actually, i mean that intensely. yeah, yeah actually that's a
0: really neat idea because as you turn around and turn those dials and create that planet that planet exists out there somewhere.
1: It does, I that's, think. <laughs> that's right. I just
0: never thought of it that, that way. But, you know, we're finding, you know, we've got like uh, 4,000 planets uh, that we've we've uh, uh, identified. And, and that number is just going to increase over time.
1: Well, and those are ones we identify. If you go on what we predict, you look up in the sky now, and we're not looking at stars anymore. We're looking at solar systems.
0: So, Mary, with all this said, what do you think? Are we alone? I
1: think absolutely not. I believe that I'm not sure when we're going to
0: find life, but I am certain that there is life
1: beyond Earth.
0: Yeah, I am too. Mary, you know, I always ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that got them so excited about the being the, the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So, Mary, what was your gravity assist?
1: So, I think... I can identify a person that helped me um, you know pushed me forward and that was my mom and and although she was not a scientist she was very extremely bright and very interested in the natural world and very interested in science fiction so I have memories of a child uh, going to the beach in the summer and being encouraged to set up aquaria and to study the the organisms in the ocean and I have memories of every Thursday night I think it was I might be wrong about the day assembling with my, my four other siblings to watch Star Trek on TV with the entire family. And so um, I think that the, the very force of personality that my mother had, the, the hope, the imagination is what really um, sent me to, into science and, and, and really um, nurtured and stimulated my curiosity that led me to where I am today.
0: Mary, let's say one of our scientists calls you up and says, I found it. I think I have found life on this planet. What do you do next? So extraordinary claims
1: require extraordinary evidence, and that comes from our most famous and inspirational scientist, Carl Sagan. And in fact, this happened to us in 1996. A scientific group out of Houston um, came to us with evidence—four lines of evidence—that they thought that they had actually found evidence of life in a Martian meteorite, and. Very good scientist, excellent, reputable um, scientist, respectable scientist, said they had the evidence. And it came out in a peer-reviewed publication. And after that, the entire scientific community started examining it and challenging it. And one of the things that we discovered is you can do great work. But you can still be wrong. And in fact, I like to say that astrobiology is 60 years of doing research, proving ourselves wrong as we move towards understanding what life is and how we can detect it. And so the first thing that I would do is, you know, find out what that evidence is. We'd make sure that it was put to the test by other scientists before we would do anything with that. So, you know, the peer review process in publications is a start. We've learned, too, that some people can be so enthusiastic that we might even need greater challenges. But we would basically take it to the scientific, the global scientific community and put it to the test.
0: And then if it turned out to be true.
1: Uh, once I started, uh, stopped screaming <laughs> <laughs> with excitement, uh, we would go back on to, I mean, I, you know, I think that a lot of us have talked about what would be the next the next step. And well, we
0: certainly wouldn't keep it a secret,
1: no, absolutely not. One of the things the astrobiology program does is we have talked to individuals about what it would mean to you to find life. Does it challenge your religious beliefs? Does it challenge um you know how you think about yourself or whatever? You know are you frightened by the concept? And so uh, it would be really important to think about how to deliver that 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 messaging. and I think that there is tremendous excitement that we could convey. I think we can convey hope and uh, leading to a better understanding about ourselves, I think we'd also need to know like, so where did you find it and how can we find out more? I mean, you know, initially after I stopped screaming myself, it's like, I want to get some more of that. I want to go to wherever that came from. I want to, you know, more work, more science, more characterization, more to understand. I mean, I, it's the next
0: set of questions you now want to ask.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's what i do after I'd stop screaming. What about you, Jim? Oh,
0: <laughs> well, what would I do? Yeah, this is you. <laughs> I'd be screaming, too. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And, Mary, thanks so much for joining me today and talking about, of course, one of my favorite subjects, too, astrobiology. <laughs>
1: <Biology>. <laughs> thank you so much, Jim. You're this very has been a blast. Welcome. Yeah, thank
0: you. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.